From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. Father Ed Dowling is a Jesuit priest I just heard about for the first time a few months ago when I got a copy of the author Don Eden Goldstein's new biography. As I read the book, I kept thinking to myself, how is this guy not more famous? Dawn's book, which is titled Father Ed, the story of Bill W.'s spiritual sponsor, is the first biography of Father Edward Dowling S.J., a Jesuit from St. Louis who became a close friend and spiritual mentor to Bill Wilson, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Although not an alcoholic himself, Father Ed had a deep understanding of the 12-step program and its spiritual principles. He helped Bill Wilson overcome his own depression and deepen his relationship with God. Father Ed also devoted so much of his ministry to helping people in recovery from various addictions and afflictions, as well as promoting social justice and ecumenism. This book is based on extensive research and interviews Don conducted with people who knew Father Ed and Bill Wilson. It reveals the remarkable story of how these two men from different backgrounds and faiths forged a bond that changed their lives and the lives of millions of others. It also shows how Father Ed's Jesuit spirituality influenced the development of AA and its legacy. Father Ed is an essential read for anyone interested in the history and spirituality of Alcoholics Anonymous, the role of Jesuits in American culture, and the power of friendship and grace in overcoming personal struggles. I asked Dawn to tell me about some of the most fascinating things she learned about Father Ed and how his ministry might inform the church's work with those in recovery today. As an added bonus, we're publishing on our website, Jesuits.org, an excerpt from the book that goes into how Father Ed saw the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius at work in Alcoholics Anonymous and kind of what that discovery meant to Bill Wilson. You can find that again at our website at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, Don Eden Goldstein, welcome to AMDG in person. Thank you so much for coming and spending some time to talk about your fabulous new book, Father Ed, the story of Bill W.'s spiritual sponsor. Well, first of all, congratulations uh, on the book. Thank you so much. Well, it's really a joy to be on this show. I, I've, I've been a great admirer of the Jesuits for a long time, you know, so much so that I just wrote an entire biography of one. So this is a thrill. Thank you. Yeah, no, and I think it's really a great gift uh, to the Jesuits, to the church, uh, to readers. Clearly a, such a labor of love. Uh, and you really take us deep into the life of Father Ed, a story that I, th- I didn't know anything about before uh, you're reading your book and, and learning about it. And so I'm excited to be able to share a little bit about him today, um, some of the backstory, the way he was connected to the early days of Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step programs and recovery, all the great ministry he did with, as you refer to, people with problems in yes. a very broad way. You use that phrase a lot in the book, that he was always accompanying those people um, and, uh, yeah, so again, a great story and, and role model, certainly, and someone to learn a lot from. And so, yeah, and hopefully we'll pique people's interest and then they'll go get a copy of the book. So maybe we could start, if you could just maybe introduce us to Father Ed, uh, tell us a little bit about him, what he was like, 
uh, from, you know, even as a young person, bring us into his story a little bit. Well, Father Edward Dowling S.J. was born in St. Louis in 1898, died in 1960, and he spent pretty much his entire life in St. Louis, ex except for certain periods of his Jesuit formation. Uh, he was the grandson of, of you know, an, an Irish, uh, um, well, Irish immigrants, uh, one, of, one of whom uh, was uh, someone who was a railroad contractor. Uh, so uh, he, he certainly had, had some, you know, very strong working class Irish roots. Uh, he, he grew up in a you know, fairly middle-class Irish neighborhood of, of St. Louis. Uh, and he was uh, originally uh, thinking of being a baseball uh, pro. Uh, he uh, tried out for some major league baseball teams. Uh, didn't make it, but certainly was considered the baseball star at the Jesuit uh, High School, what's now known as SLU High, and the Jesuit uh, College. Uh, St. Mary's College in Kansas, uh, now now defunct, uh, where he where he went. Uh, he spent a year as a newspaper journalist before entering the Society of Jesus. And as a Jesuit, uh, as a, a friend of mine who knew him told me, Father Ed never quite fit. That's not to say that he didn't fit with the Jesuit charism. It's just that in the Society of Jesus at his time, and I'm guessing probably now as well, uh, there were two classes of Jesuits. There were the, the leapers, the ones who went from strength to strength, who were sent on for this licentiate in, in, in theology and this doctorate in blah, blah, blah. So there were the leapers, and then there were the creepers, mm -hmm. the ones who weren't destined for academic glory, but who were at best going to do some lowly work as parish priests or mission priests, you know? And so uh, Father Ed was designated pretty early on as a creeper. And part of that was that for his time, remember he's doing his Jesuit formation in the 1920s, he has these wild interests that make him somewhat bizarre to his superiors. For example, he's obsessed with the Irish system of proportional representation democracy, which is what we now know as single transferable vote ranked choice voting, which, which is how Mayor Adams was elected in New York City. It's how the first Native American senator was elected in Alaska. You know, it's now considered a very important tool for democracy. But in the uh, more like early 1930s, but just before Father Ed's ordination, when he was begging to do his doctorate on on something like this. No Jesuit in the United States was interested in this, and he was supposed to be interested in, in theology, not in, in something having to do with the wider culture. Uh, and likewise, he was fascinated with the spiritual exercises, and especially with the psychology of the spiritual exercises. I have a copy of his master's thesis that he did at SLU, which was supposed to be on the psychology of the spiritual exercises, but one of his 
Jesuit advisors told him, cross out every mention of psychology and replace it with philosophy. Because we Jesuits don't do psychology. That's worldly. It's materialistic, meaning that it's, it, it denies the spiritual. That was what was believed at that time in the Catholic world. So Father Ed didn't quite fit, and he was very fortunate to get a position at the Queen's work in um, St. Louis under Father Daniel A. Lord, uh, where he found a niche. Uh, the Queen's work was a publishing apost apostolate, um, and so he was, uh, Father Ed was ostensibly an associate editor there, but he really was just paid to be Father Ed. And what Father Ed became was, as you said, a priest for people with problems. He loved ministering to people on the margins, but also to people who were maybe um, of some social status, but who had rather embarrassing problems that they felt they couldn't talk to people about, let alone a priest. But then there was Father Ed and he understood them. So that's kind of the setup for how he became uh, involved with AA, which is what he's best known for. Sure, and you t tell stories in the book about whether it's counseling a couple early in their marriage that might be going awry or that people will come to his office and line up outside the yes. door. People from all walks of life would, right. would kind of show up there and had this way that, again, as you're saying, people felt comfortable. Was his personality, what could you learn about his personality? Was he, that, that made people so feel so welcomed with him? Well, one thing that people noticed right off was that he was disabled. Uh, he had a serious illness, uh, which began to afflict him when he was 23. And, you know, it, it's, it's painful even to imagine that here's someone who was the star, not only in baseball, but in pretty much every sport through his high school and college as a Jesuit novice uh, at a time when you know, Jesuit novices to his own Missouri province alone numbered in the in the dozens. He was considered the best soccer player. And then he, you know, completes his novitiate, has just begun the juniorate, which is a time when, you know, in his time at, at least, and perhaps it's similar today, after the um, novitiate, which can be a, a rather trying time, that's when they're really trying out their vocation as a Jesuit. He's just made his first vows and he should be in this kind of joy taking a breather, but he discovers while taking a walk, there's this twinge in his leg, which many years later is diagnosed as ankylosing spondylitis, uh, which is a severe form of arth arthritis uh, that, uh, you know, by the time he was 30, um, was uh, requ requiring him to, maybe not quite walk with a cane by the time he was 30. Definitely soon after his ordination he, in 1931, he was walking with a cane. Um, but it, it, this disease was calcifying his, his spine. So certainly by the time he was 30, he was walking as though he had a steel rod up his back. Um, soon after, he just became like kind of permanently hunched over. Uh, and uh, his leg calcified as well causing the need for the for the cane. So the first thing people noticed was that he was disabled. And secondly, you know, they noticed that when they came into his office, he offered them chocolate. He had candy ready. Um, 
which I, I think, you know, was probably especially helpful once he started ministering to alcoholics because, you know, the alcohol addiction is an addiction to something that gives you sugar. So, so it was quite comforting to alcoholics to be offered candy. But, you know, to anyone, you don't normally walk into a priest's office and he offers you chocolate. Um, so right away, he's my kind of priest and I'm not even an alcoholic, you know, I'm a chocoholic. Um, but, but, um, but, you know, more than that, uh, he, he listened to people. He looked people in the eye and listened to people. And also in his time, Jesuits were formed according to a certain set of rules where they were told to keep custody of the eyes. And that meant that they weren't supposed to look at people for any you know duration of time, certainly not really look at them in the face. Well, that just wasn't Father Ed. In fact, during his novitiate, one of the things that he was chided, chided about was not knowing how to manage, you know, custody of the eyes. Um, and, you know, here, you know, we're not talking about lust. We're not talking about staring at women. We're just talking, looking people in the face, you know? Um, so he acknowledged people's personhood, listened to them and really met them where they were and accompanied them. And as I write in Father Ed, you know, I don't try to push the point too much or too frequently, but I think for someone familiar with what Pope Francis is asking of priests, it's impossible looking at Father Ed's life and ministry. It's impossible not to see that he embodied many of these uh, many of these gifts and skills of priestly accompaniment that are being called for today. Yeah, and you used that line that Francis used, priests who have the smell of the sheep yes. because they are with people. I just even thinking, one of the, the stories to me that really grabbed my imagination is that he would take these long train rides from St. Louis, say, to Chicago, just to meet with someone in the train station and then get back on a train and go back to St. Louis. And at the time, again, travel taking a huge amount of time, but that sort of that in-person showing up, being there, uh, to that, that sort of accompaniment that took real sacrifice. That's absolutely right. Yes, he used to do that with uh, married couples. Uh, often uh, these, these couples in Chicago were former high school students of his. So he had taught, you know, the, like the husband in, in these couples um, when he was teaching at uh, Loyola Academy in Chicago. Uh, during his uh, during um, the, the his regency, the, the period of Jesuit formation when there's teaching, and these boys, these high school students, they stayed in touch with him and he with them uh, through to the end of his life, and he accompanied them throughout their lives. I spoke with uh, children of these students who remembered how often. Father Ed would be at their home. And so if they were having a problem in their marriage, as you say, he would take the train from St. Louis to uh, to Chicago's Union Station and then at, or maybe not the Union Station, there were a couple of stations back then uh, in Chicago, but then he would um, go for uh, a, a hot fudge sundae with the couple at the, at the cafe or diner in the station 
and then get on the train and go back to St. Louis. And it definitely was not a short ride. Yeah, sure. No, it also reminds me of you hear those stories of different priests or, or others who everyone who knows them feels like they are the most important person in the world. Yes. And then only later realize, oh, he was that for dozens or hundreds of people. But they could feel like you were the only person in the world in that that moment. That was some of the things I was reflecting on reading his story. And I think so some you seeing now we're talking about some of his his way of being in the world, his way of proceeding, as Jesuits talk about his pastoral uh, vision and just kind of what he committed himself to. So now I'd like to get into some of the, the connections with with Bill W., so one of the two founders of AA, uh, Bill Wilson, and the connection well, he had with him. You tell So maybe if we could start, like how did he get interested in AA? He himself, Father Ed, was not an alcoholic, uh, but got really interested in it. And then that story of their first meeting is such a vivid one that you tell so well in the book of how they met for the very first time. Uh, so maybe, yeah, a little bit of the background. How did he first get interested in AA? And then if you could tell us that story of meeting Bill W., uh, that would be great. Sure. Uh, great questions. Well, uh, I love talking about how Father Ed first got into AA because it was through an, an alcoholic. And, you know, it's one of many times when Father Ed really allowed himself to be led by a layperson into his next area of, of ministry. Uh, so in this case, um, I, I although normally anonymity is maintained in AA, I've been permitted by the daughter of this alcoholic to, to give his name. Uh, it, it was Edwin Leahy, who was a reporter for the Chicago Daily News. Uh, and it's not clear exactly how Father Ed knew Leahy, could have met him while teaching in Chicago. They could have known each other through the world of journalism. What is clear is that Leahy was a terrible drunk and his drinking had led his, his wife to take their two uh, young daughters and go to live with uh, family. Uh, and also uh, his drinking had led his boss, the editor-in-chief at the Chicago Daily News to tell him that he had to quit drinking or be fired. Uh, so this was the situation at the time when Father Ed was called into the situation. He was actually called into the situation by the nun who uh, ran the orphanage where the Leahy's had, from which the Leahy's had adopted their children. The nun was worried that he or she had you know, placed these two little girls in a nice Catholic family and now you know, the parents were being split apart and you know both the kids were still were still you know toddlers at, at that at that point uh, so uh, father Ed through this kind of magic that he worked pastorally was able to reunite uh, the Leahys with a promise from uh, Edwin that he would uh, that he would stop drinking and the, and that he would receive communion regularly go to confession and those were the only things that one, that a Catholic priest, priest could really uh, ask of someone at that point. A Catholic priest couldn't say go to AA uh, because at that time, uh, AA was not known nationally. This was uh, January 1940 when this all happened. Uh, AA had started four and a half years earlier. The big book of AA, which has the 12 steps, which is the plan through which AA members uh, attain and maintain their sobriety 
that had only been pub been out for a year. So AA was still this very new thing. And one reason why it hadn't yet caught on in the Catholic world was that uh, when Bill Wilson, uh, who was who was the the um, co-founder of AA along with Dr. Bob, uh, when Bill um, became sober, it was within this Protestant group called the Oxford Group. Now, pretty early on in its history, AA officially separated from the Oxford Group and uh, became, you know, officially non-religious, spiritual but not religious, as we as we say uh, today. Uh, but uh, at that time, you know, there was still, you know, a lot of suspicion because of that close uh, closeness in AA's origins with Protestantism. And there was also just, you know, certainly in the Catholic world and in the, the world of other uh, religions too, there was this fear of anything that claimed to be spiritual but not religious. You know, were, was this a cult, a, a cult? Um, so, uh, you know, in that atmosphere, it was hard for AA to catch fire. Uh, so after Father Ed sent Leahy back to Chicago, he uh, goes to Chicago on his way to an, to another uh, uh, to a speaking gig uh, in the Northeast uh, a few weeks later, and to his delight, he finds that Leahy is still dry, and and Leahy and his wife and kids are all doing well, and Leahy tells Father Ed that he's been hanging out with uh, some of the alcoholics he knows from work, and that they're all part of this group. Uh, called Alcoholics Anonymous that are meeting and encouraging one another to stay dry. And Father Ed is rather puzzled at this. And so Leahy invites him to come to a meeting of this group. And I was able to find something that no researcher had ever found before. I mean, there's there's been no biography of Father Ed until now. There's been a an edited collection of his correspondence with Bill Wilson. There's been a book that's a kind of spiritual reflection on his life. Um, but nobody had ever, you know, gone to the sources that I've found. And so I found, you know, in Father Ed's own words, his recollection of that first meeting. And, you know, in it, you know, he describes how, you know, he, he looked at these, you know, people and didn't really think there was anything special about, about, about them from the looks of them. Uh, but then they started talking and telling their stories. And he says that, you know, from that moment on, he says, I was transfixed, you know, by these stories. And he calls AA the greatest drama in America today. He considered it a drama because it's it's a drama uh, of, you know, like like every kind of classic story of the of the hero. You know, there's you know the great conflict and 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 you know the sense that all is lost. You know, uh, and then this, you know, great um, triumph that is rather hard won and ongoing, but is made possible uh, through uh, the the intervention in Greek drama. It's of the gods. In this case, it's God as the alcoholic understands him, the higher power. Hey, this is Mike Jordan-Lasky. I'm one of the hosts of AMDG. Popping in for just a minute to tell you about an awesome 
program called Contemplative Leaders in Action, or CLA. It's an Ignatian leadership program for people in their 20s and 30s. I'm actually an alum of the program. I did it about 10 years ago in Philadelphia and found it to be a life-changing experience that really invited me and like the other 15 people or so in, in my cohort to think about how we act and live in the world in a way that reflects our beliefs, affirms our own purpose in life, and also promotes social justice. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Meg Leach. Meg is in CLA right now in Washington, D.C. Meg, why don't you tell me a little bit about what your experience has been like? So for me, like for you, Mike, I think the greatest gift of this program has been the community and the friendships that I have gained from it. So, you know, over the last 18 months, uh, my cohort has gathered twice a month to explore different themes around Ignatian spirituality and, and leadership, themes like relational leadership, leading in complexity, accountable leadership, but also, you know, vocational discernment. Um, and how do those apply holistically to our lives, not just our careers, but also our family and friends' lives? Um, and as I finish up this experience, I'm really grateful for the, the deep kind of friendships that I've cultivated through really intentional sharing and reflection and communication. That's awesome. So you have two big advocates here on the program. There are new cohorts forming now in different cities across the country and an online cohort so folks can be involved no matter where you're living. Again, for people in their, in their 20s and 30s who are interested in learning how Ignatian spirituality can, can guide you as a leader in the world today, you can apply online at contemplativeleaders.org. That's contemplativeleaders.org. The application deadline is May 1st, 2023. And uh, do it. Do it. That's all. <laughs> That's amazing to me to, to have that kind of a realization, almost like a spiritual epiphany when you encounter something and you know that like something is happening here. God is at work here, that there is there's something he will, like that needs to learn more about. Um, and so starts learning more and, and kind of chasing it, including kind of just showing up to see if he can track down and meet Bill W to, to find out more about him. So yeah, can you maybe tell that story uh, about their first meeting? Sure, and there's certainly an Ignatian connection with regard to the first meeting of Father Ed with Bill Wilson, because after uh, Father Ed's first experience of AA in Chicago, uh, he went back to his office at the Queen's work, uh, and one of the Jesuits he knew in St. Louis was Father John Marcoux. Now, Father Marcoux, along with his brother, Father uh, Father William uh, Marcoux, are now um, rightly lauded in the Jesuit world for uh, their work uh, in civil rights. They had very early on, along with uh, Father Austin Bork, pledged their priesthoods to uh, to you know improving and and improving the the, the life uh, of of the uh, of the black person in America, uh, but uh, at that time, though Father John Marcoux was not in a good place. Uh, he was alcoholic, and he was both a patient and a chaplain at a local facility, a local sanitarium. So, at that time, there was no proven treatment for alcoholism. You know, at best, they might be in a facility temporarily to dry out and then somehow white knuckle it to sobriety. But at worst, um, they might be sent to 
a mental facility for life. They, they might uh, have be sent for a frontal lobotomy, electroshock therapy. And none of these things had any you know, proven success rate. It's just that people in the medical community, as well as alcoholics themselves, were desperate. Uh, so uh, Father Ed brought the big book of AA to Father John Marcou, and Father Marcou looked at the 12 steps of AA and said, well, these have some resemblance to the principles of the spiritual exercises. Uh, now, you know, some people have since noted uh, that there are some specific similarities between uh, things in the big book and the exercises, such as the, you know, the third step prayer, different, you know, aspects of, of surrender. And that's, you know, certainly part of it. But for Father Marcoux, Father Marcoux had already done a study of the spiritual exercises. And I actually reprint this, this study in um, Father, Father Ed. Uh, it, it was this uh, chart that he had drawn up. And what interested Father Marcoux about the spiritual exercises was the way that you can map out the different stages of the spiritual life in them. So spiritual theologians uh, tra traditionally uh, find, uh, the, they identify these different uh, stages of the spiritual life, including uh, the purgative state, which is the state of ridding oneself of sin. Uh, then there's the illuminative state, which is allowing oneself, you know, by God's grace to be illuminated to, by, by God, to, have, to walk with God and to experience what it's like to, to live the, the, the virtuous life. And then there's the final unitive stage or way of the spiritual life, which is that stage at which one uh, desires that nothing would separate one from, from God. And, you know, most of us, if we make it to the unitive way at all, ever, we slip back somewhere along those ways. And that's partly what the spiritual exercises are, 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 are for, to, to help us to stay on the upward uh, path, because there is no lateral movement in the spiritual life. You're either on your way up or you're on your way down. So Father Marcoux saw in the 12 steps, you know, the 12 steps uh, be begin uh, with, you know, an admission of, of powerlessness, of, of powerlessness of, over alcohol. And then they, and then they, they go on to, uh, to recognition uh, in, st in step two that uh, a power greater, you know, than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Uh, then step three, there is that surrender, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Uh, so Father Marcuse saw the purgative way, which is that initial surrender and ridding oneself of sin. And he also saw the unitive way of walking with God in those steps. And th that's what he pointed out to Father Ed. And this fascinated Father Ed. Father Ed eventually on his own, came to understand that even the unitive way is in the 12 steps. The unitive way of never wanting to be separated from God is in the 12th step, uh, where it says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So Father Ed really saw the way to spiritual perfection 
the, the whole way mapped out in these steps. And here, you know, Father Ed had wanted to continue doing research that he had started in his master's uh, degree. He had wanted to continue doing research on St. Ignatius of Loyola and specifically on St. Ignatius of Loyola's spiritual exercises for the control of the will to grow in virtue. And he saw that it seemed like Bill Wilson, you know, the author of the big book and the 12 steps, I should say one of the authors, the, it, the big book is, is, a, is crowdsourced, as they say. But still, certainly Bill is the one who, who put the 12 steps on paper. Uh, Father Ed saw you know, that Bill Wilson must be this great Ignatian spiritual master because he's continuing this, this work that, that Father Ed had himself thought that, you know, that or hoped that he would do. Uh, so uh, Father Ed decided he had to find this great Ignatian spiritual master and talk to him. Uh, so uh, he made a side trip to New York on his way to uh, give a talk uh, in New England. And late at night, because his train arrived at, at night, uh, Father Ed came to the AA clubhouse to meet Bill. I guess he had probably heard that Bill at that time, along with his wife Lois, had temporarily moved into the clubhouse uh, because they had lost their own, their own home and were basically living on the kindness of, 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 of others at that point. Uh, so when Father Ed came to see Bill, what he didn't know was that Bill at that time was hitting a new bottom. Uh, Bill had certainly by that point attained lasting physical sobriety, but Bill had yet to attain real spiritual sobriety. Uh, he would say later that at that time he met Father Ed, he was on a dry drunk. He was suffering from this terrible frustration that AA hadn't taken off. And here he had had 5,000 copies of the big book printed, and there were still more than half of, those, of that number of copies sitting gathering dust in a warehouse a year uh, after uh, the book had, had come out. Um, so, so when Father Ed rather uh, painfully came up the flight of stairs to uh, the room where Bill was staying, uh, Lois was out at that time, um, uh, Father Ed, you know, sat himself down, and you know, Bill had just been told by the by the janitor, some bum from St. Louis is here to see you, because Father Ed, uh, you know, at the end of a day with his um, with his crippling, you know, disease, you know, he wasn't able to comfortably comb his hair or brush himself off after a rail trip, and with his cane, you know, he sounded like a drunk, you know, thumping his way up the stairs to to Bill. So he sat himself down and, and it wasn't until he took off his coat, because Bill didn't even offer to take off his coat, Bill was so depressed, um, that Bill saw Father Ed's collar and realized, oh, here's a priest. And at that point, he's just thinking, some drunk, disheveled priest is here to see me. And Father Ed says, well, it says, says to him, I'm very interested in the connections between your 12 steps and the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. And Bill says, never heard of him. And Father Ed laughs. And that breaks the ice between them. And before Bill knows it, he's opening up to Father Ed about his whole life, about his frustrations. Bill Wilson, looking back on that meeting, he described it as the third great spiritual epiphany of his life. Uh, the first one was an experience he had at Winchester 
cathedral where he felt the presence of God. This was when he was an army, uh, I believe, a, a, a private. Certainly he was a soldier in, in World War I uh, in England. Uh, then his second great epiphany was at Towns Hospital in New York where he had checked himself in in hope of drying out. And that was where he had his the spiritual experience that led him to stop drinking. Uh, and then this third great epiphany was with Father Ed. Later, he even said that it seemed like there had been a glow emanating from Father Ed's face. So this was uh, truly a numinous experience for Bill. And for Father Ed as well, there was a connection made there. Uh, Father Ed said later that the graces he experienced in working with alcoholics were equivalent to the graces that he experienced at his ordination. You know, in other words, Father Ed, through his contact with Bill and through every contact that he had with an alcoholic afterwards, he felt a renewal of the graces of the, the sacrament of orders that he had received. Um, and the advice that Father Ed gave to Bill is not the kind of advice that we would expect. Um, you know, he, he didn't give him platitudes. He didn't tell him that life was going to be easier. Uh, Bill uh, you know, said, uh, said to, to him you know, that you know, Bill was feeling this, this, terrible, um, this, this terrible thirst, uh, this terrible frustration. And Father Ed said to him, blessed are they who do hunger and thirst. Uh, Father Ed was trying to impress upon him this Augustinian idea that thirst is a gift from God. You know, you made us for, for, for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you, you know, from Augustine's confessions. Uh, so the question was, where was Bill going to direct his thirst? Was he going to direct it at things that were lower than himself, such as drink or fame or success, even the success of a good thing, uh, such as AA? could still be a lesser good. And you know, Ignatius in his Rules for Spiritual Discernment has something to say against uh, accepting a lesser good or settling for one. Um, uh, or was Bill going to direct his thirst upward to the highest good, to God? And then uh, Bill said to him, won't there be any satisfaction? And Father Ed said, no, never. <laughs> <laughs> and what I take that to mean it, and here I'm inspired partly by the great AA historian Ernie Kurtz, um, who said something similar. Um, I take that to mean that Father Ed was trying to impress upon Bill that that his, his, while his satisfaction wouldn't come until heaven, he couldn't expect full satisfaction on this earth. Yet, because if we're in a state of grace, we experience a foretaste of heaven on earth, Bill's heaven was going to be experienced in his thirst for souls, so to speak, his thirst to help other alcoholics become sober, that in each alcoholic, Bill was going to find some small experience of satisfaction from, from his thirst, but that was going to be one day at a time. So, they have this first meeting that's clearly memorable for, for both of them. And then if you could just talk maybe a little bit about then from there, how 
uh, Father Ed was connected both to, to Bill as a spiritual guide and counselor, who Bill, on the back of your book, says Bill had said he was the greatest and most gentle soul to walk this planet. So clearly a relationship developed. And also Father Ed was involved in the kind of nascent AA movement as it spread, especially in his hometown of St. Louis. So yeah, how did then the, this initial connection then blossom into a deeper relationship? Well, even before Father Ed met Bill, he met him in November 1940. During that like nine months uh, between Father Ed's first hearing of AA and his tracking down Bill, Father Ed had already founded, <laughs> basically, or co-founded the first AA chapter in St. Louis. Um, Father, Father Ed, and I can relate to this personally because it, you know, it's a quality that I have as well. It's the quality that enabled me to write about Father Ed. Father Ed was a man obsessed. If he got into something, he put his, he threw his whole self into it. So just as he had thrown his whole self into the study of the spiritual exercises as a young Jesuit, just as he had thrown his whole self into the study of proportional representation as, a, as an ideal form of, uh, or tool for democracy. So he just threw himself into AA and not just AA, but the concept behind it that Father Ed identified as isopathy, which is a fancy word for the idea of people who suffer from something helping one other people who suffer from the same thing. Exactly, exactly. And you know, Father Ed could certainly relate to that. You know, both on a physical level in terms of his disability, but much more on an emotional, spiritual level. What I've found, and I, I touch on this in Father Ed, but it's become clearer to me since I've written it, is that Father Ed's great wound was loneliness. Um, he, uh, he became, through his um, accompaniment of members of AA, he became an honorary member to the point that he was welcome at any AA meeting in the world, even those that are normally closed, you know, so, so that only alcoholics can, can uh, attend. Um, so Father Ed actually uh, wrote to Bill at one point saying that in his travels, he said, I have been using AA shamelessly as a lonely hearts club. You know, Father A really envied AA members for their fellowship. He called himself underprivileged because he wasn't an alcoholic and so could never be a full member of AA. Uh, he felt that the AA members were the privileged ones. And yes, as you say, uh, for the next 20 years after meeting uh, Bill, so you know, for the last 20 years of Father Ed's uh, life, uh, he was what Bill would call his Bill's spiritual sponsor. Um, Bill had someone he also called his regular sponsor. So in AA, normally a sponsor is someone who helps the AA member work the 12 steps, someone who's experienced in working the steps. So Father Ed called his regular sponsor, well, he called Ebby T, the person who introduced Bill to the Oxford group, which was where Bill first managed to maintain his sobriety. I, Bill called Ebby T his actual sponsor, but Bill called Father Ed his spiritual sponsor because on a spiritual level, it was Father Ed who saved Bill from a dry drunk. And, and Bill said, 
later, you know, he's kept me from many dry drunks since then. So whenever Bill was feeling that frustration and depression, which Bill suffered from very badly for many years, Bill knew that he could call Father Ed, he could see Father Ed, he could write to Father Ed, and Father Ed would always give him some word that would help elevate Bill out of what he was suffering. I, the book really I, I love is you get so much happening here. So it's a biography of one person, but you're also getting social history, even the, the history of the relationships between Catholics and Protestants uh, in that period of time and a look into the Society of Jesus at that time and what novitiate was like and different formation pieces, uh, looking at some of the, the social developments and the social justice movements he was connected with. You talk about uh, his work then counseling married couples and doing a whole area of ministry. That could be a whole other podcast uh, about his work with married couples, uh, including talking about things, uh, you know, sexual health in couples that would have been shocking to hear from a priest in that, those days. Um, but he, so, so much is there, so much richness, which I, again, I really value. Um, and we get this, this picture of him. And, and I guess I, maybe I could just ask you kind of a, a final reflection why this book now? Like, what about Father Ed do you think we need now? He died 63 years ago. Um, what does he have for us and for the church today, do you think? That's a great question, Mike. Uh, first, I believe that we need models of the priesthood, particularly how it's lived in modern times. Uh, Father Ed was a very modern priest. He pioneered a lot of types of ministry, styles of ministry that are you know, accepted today as right practices, but in his time were thought of as you know, very weird. And many people, including Jesuits, looked down upon Father Ed. I mean, the college church at St. Louis University, the, the St. The St. Francis Xavier College Church, which is, you know, this great kind of cathedral-like church that's, the, that's uh, one of the greatest um, church buildings that the Jesuits have in the United States. Uh, the pastor there refused to hold Father Ed's funeral. Now, he didn't give a reason why, but we can imagine it's because he didn't want a lot of drunks and street people and prostitutes and former inmates, you know, muddying up the college church. So the provincial of the Missouri uh, pro province had to actually call up the pastor of the college church and order him under holy obedience to hold Father Ed's funeral there. And the funeral was absolutely packed with everyone from the mayor to a little old lady with her lunch in a brown bag who couldn't stop crying, you know? Um, and, and that's a literal <laughs> description from someone who was, who was there. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that now we have so many examples, negative examples of priests who fail, priests who seem like they're doing this great work and then it turns out that they've um, abused finances, abused people. Um, I, I combed through the files of Father Ed pretty carefully to see if there was any point at which he had such failures. I interviewed many people who, who knew him, 
And what I really found was as far as we know, I mean, you know, as far as can be told from quite a lot of information that's available there, Father Ed didn't fail. Um, or rather, you know, what he did do was he, he admitted his limitations as a human being. He admitted that, that um, we, we, all, we all fail in, in, in some way. I, I think that's actually in the imitation of Christ, which is uh, one of the books that helped to form uh, Father, Father Ed. Uh, there's a wonderful quote, which also reveals his sense of humor, where um, a Catholic priest who was uh, a promoter of you know what was then called total abstinence, just taking the pledge and and pledging never to drink. Uh, this priest uh, in 1941 wrote to Father Ed, you know, saying, "Hey, you're pr pr promoting this AA group, and they're talking about alcoholism like it's a disease. And don't you think that if they think that their alcoholism is a disease, that it might cause them to?" lose their sense of responsibility for it and thus lose their sense of sin. And Fatherhead's reply was, while the sense of sin would, would, would be naturally lost in institutions of secular higher learning, this AA is an institution of secular lower failing. <laughs> so he identified with these people of lower failing, these people who admitted their powerlessness and their need of God's grace at every moment of their lives. Uh, so I, I think, you know, really to, to not only show a positive example of a priest who did not fail, but also to combat clericalism, we need, uh, we need Father, uh, Father Ed. And, and finally, I would say, you know, because something we, we haven't spoken about, there's only so much time, uh, with regard to Father Ed's work in racial justice, uh, you know, he, he campaigned successfully to have uh, a marker put on Dred Scott's grave. 100 years after the Dred Scott decision, there was still not a grave on Dred Scott's, um, uh, 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 not a grave, excuse me. Let me, put, let me backtrack. So we're backtracking. So, you know, another thing, and there's only, you know, so much time to talk about these things, but uh, with regard to, racial justice. Father Ed was a leader in that as well. He campaigned to have a marker put on Dred Scott's grave. 100 years after the Dred Scott decision, uh, Dred Scott still lay in an unmarked grave. And interestingly enough, even as Father Ed was campaigning to have this marker placed on Dred Scott's grave, he was also campaigning unsuccessfully even to get mainstream media to cover the 100th anniversary of the Dred Scott decision. And he was getting these letters back from, you know, CBS News saying, well, you know, we recently covered Emmett Till, and so it'll be a while before we can have another story about the Negro, you know, that sort of thing. You know, ridiculous stuff. Um, so I think that today, Father Ed can be an example as a Jesuit who was perfectly faithful, perfectly orthodox, and faithful and orthodox in ways that included a really deep understanding of what it means to live the church's teachings on social justice. One thing that's really encouraged me in doing p press for Father Ed is that on the one hand, uh, Father Ed is getting press in 
the tablet and in America magazine, uh, which you know are generally thought of as either centrist or by some you know pr progressive or left of center uh, publications. But Father Ed, you know, this biography is also being written up in the American Conservative, the Washington Examiner, the Acton Institute blog, you know, people who normally would not be on the same page as America Magazine or the UK tablet. But they see something in Father Ed's life that I would say is unifying. And so I'm really encouraged by that. Mm, yeah, I, it's for sure. I see him as, as you, as Francis also has called uh, church leaders to this sense of creativity and boldness and kind of stepping out and doing new things, always rooted in the tradition and, and following uh, gospel and what his superiors were asking of him and what he felt he was called to do, but doing things in, in new ways and not being afraid to take those risks and, and doing so uh, really bla blazed the trail and supported, you know, so many countless people. Well, well, Don Eden Goldstein, thank you so much for for taking the time to talk about this, for writing this book, which really is a gift, as I said earlier, to the Jesuits and to the church and, and the world. And hopefully folks will have a chance to get a copy and read it because, there, again, I've only just scratched the surface. There's so much in here. You found so much and it included so much in, in the book. So thank you again for the time and uh, best of luck in whatever uh, project next uh, tickles your imagination. Thank you so much, Mike. God bless you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.